Does worrying about making ends meet, anger over broken confidences, or discouragement over spiritual struggles sound familiar? Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 34, and let's listen as our study leader Dave Wurtson begins today's study expressing some of his own concerns about bills, backaches, and stress. I don't know where in the world we're going to be able to get the money to cover these bills. Anybody said that? Mary's brother Frank and Luana, my sister-in-law, we're all getting up there in those golden years, those fantastic years of strength called, I guess, middle age, whatever it might be. It's interesting the different discussions that 28-year-olds have or 30-year-olds have and that 40-year-olds have. And that always amazes me. I remember we used to talk about uh, playing basketball and we used to talk about some of those athletic events, but this year we were talking about high blood pressure and bad backs and whether or not we would make it to the doctors that afternoon, get the right appointment. And Frank leaned back in his chair one time and just started laughing. He said, man alive, we're just coming apart. One of the things that I found that we were talking about is stress. You know, stress is something that is plaguing Americans. In fact, magazine like Time Magazine, for example, has done a whole major edition on stress. Probably this week, some of you have wrestled with that. You know what stress is? It's that deep-seated feeling of foreboding. You know, something's going to happen, and, and that worry, and that, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. And that's a tough one. I think probably some of the rest of us this week have said, I can't believe my best friend broke confidence with me. In other words, you had a good friend and you shared something in absolute secrecy with them, real quiet confidence. And what made your friendship so special is that you knew that they were a friend that you could count on. And then you found out that they blabbed it all over the place. And in your heart, you felt, I could kill them. Man, I could kill them for breaking that confidence. And so we've wrestled this week with what do you do when somebody really messes you up? They really offend you. They sin against you. And then a final area, maybe a question that would kind of highlight what Matthew wants to talk to us about in Matthew 6 would be this. Has anybody felt this week, maybe all of this stress upon Jesus? I mean, maybe all of this preoccupation with Jesus, maybe it's really not psychologically healthy. In other words, I know a whole lot of people that get along just fine. In fact, in some ways, as I look around and I analyze their life and I analyze my life, in some ways I think maybe they get along better than I do. And maybe all of this inordinate stress upon Jesus and praying for his kingdom to come and, and, and believing in the sweet by and by, we're going to have this marvelous gathering, maybe that's really not healthy. And what that is, is a sophisticated seduction from the evil one to cause us to reject Christ, to move away from him. And we can go through times in our life, even believers that know and love Christ can go through times in their life where they go through a time of testing. They go through a time of temptation. And those are the kind of feelings that we don't voice that much, that feeling like maybe I should just chuck it all. But it's a very real part of walking the life of discipleship. And Jesus talks to us 
And he teaches us to pray about those three vital areas. Number one, our daily needs. And he wants to teach us to depend upon the Father and not worry, to not have an anxiety about our daily needs, about our life and how long it's going to last, about the food that we will eat, about the clothes that we'll put on our back. He wants us to learn how to pray and not to worry. Second of all, he wants us to work with the problem of forgiveness, that problem of people that are wiping us out. He wants us to learn how to pray. Forgive the person that offended us, even as the Father has forgiven us. And thirdly, he wants us to pray about the times of testing and the times of temptation. We want to talk today about those two areas. Many times they're the same bad circumstances, the same kind of stress, and yet there's one almighty, tremendous heavenly daddy that is trying to build us, but there's also a heinous enemy, the evil one, the adversary, Satan, who's trying to snuff us out. Matthew chapter 6, the rest of the chapter, once we get to the Lord's Prayer, the rest of the chapter is a development. It's like the Lord Jesus' explanation of what the Lord's Prayer is about. Probably many of you didn't realize that because we often pray the Lord's Prayer, the poster noster, you might say. We often pray our Father who art in heaven in isolation, out of context. And so probably a lot of you didn't recognize that when we get to Matthew 6 and the Lord gives us the Lord's Prayer, in the rest of the chapter, in fact, Almost through to the end of his sermon, what Jesus is doing is explaining to us what he's talking about when he teaches us to pray in this manner. So let's pick it up with leaving the concerns of our Father. We talked about that vertical dimension. Let's move into the dimension of our needs, our human horizontal needs that we have concerning material things, concerning our relationship with others, and concerning the times of testing that we have, living in a world where things are not just as God's heart would have them to be. You know the phrase well. Look at it in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. It's a very simple statement. Give us today our daily bread. What in the world does it mean to pray for our daily needs? Well, if you look a little bit down into the chapter and pick it up in verse 19, you notice that Jesus begins to talk about, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Now, I think it's real easy for us to recognize that immorality is a big problem among American people. What Jesus just highlighted is a much greater enemy in our society, and it's much stronger, and it's much more pervasive. And that is the enemy of materialism. Now, as soon as we mention the word materialism, it's easy for us to get defensive because we have the idea that somehow material things are evil. In other words, because we as Americans have nice cars, because we have homes, because we have clothes, there's something intrinsically wrong with that. And down through the Christian centuries, down through the history of the Christian church, there's been a lot of debate over vows of poverty. In fact, there's been entire groups of believers that have taken vows of poverty. And many times they've gone back to sections like we're studying now to highlight that. 
Now, something I think we need to understand that the Lord Jesus is not going to say that evil, that material things are evil. Just very clearly, you can see that. If I were to teach you to pray, give us this day our daily bread, if material things were evil, to ask the Lord to give us our material needs would be evil. Because bread just doesn't mean give us a loaf of cooked bread. We use the expression in our society, I need some bread. What do we mean by that? We don't mean we need a loaf. I need some bread. We need money. And we use the word bread as kind of a, a figure of speech for money. In the ancient world, the word bread would even mean a broader idea, and it would apply to all of our material possessions, all of the basic necessities that we have for life. And contrary to, what, to a lot of religious thinking, the Son of God was not opposed to material things. He wasn't teaching us that we should become ascetics, that we should go without food for extensive periods of time and not ever have anything to eat, that we should take vows of poverty. Now, the Lord will lead some special believers, some people that he chooses in a special way for certain periods of their life to make decisions about those things. But it's very important to understand that God is not saying that material things are evil. What he is saying is that it's evil if material things have a hold of us. What he's saying is, is that if we are living to build up treasures, a treasure is something that we cherish. It's something that we devote our thinking to. It's something that we devote our plans to. It's something that we're counting on. And what Jesus is saying is that if we start to build our entire lives on building up treasures, material treasures, that that's going to hurt us. Why? Because what Jesus brings out is something very basic. Look at it there in verse 19. Moth and rust, and the words that are used here are moth and eating. And the word that's used for eating is a word that could be used just for I ate a meal or I eat a meal. It's also used of any kinds of bugs that eat up your stuff. Okay? In other words, in our closet, we have the winter jacket, the winter coat closet. Anybody have one of those? And what happens after you put your winter coats in there for a winter? You go into, in there the next fall when you need your winter jacket again, the late fall. What have many of you found out about those winter clothes? What's happened to some of them? Mary will scream and she'll come in and say, Look at this! Look at this wool jacket! There's a hole right through it! What's she saying? Those little eatings. Those worms in English we would use it, but it stands for any kind of larvae, any kind of bug that eats away at our stuff. You ever thought of how horrible it is? You know, you get all excited about clothes. My brother-in-law invests all kinds of of, of insight and planning. He travels to Boston trying to find the latest idea in women's apparel and little bugs eat the life right out of it. I mean, what lady wants to walk in, you know, to, to her work or into church with a great big wormhole in her skirt? And what Jesus is saying is this, is that's the nature of material things. It is. In other words, all of our material things are being eaten up. They're all subject to the moth. 
And what Jesus is saying is that that's why you don't want to build your life on that. You don't want to build your life on something that worms can eat. And that's the whole nature of the physical world that we live in. You see, God wants us to enjoy the physical world. He wants us to appreciate the material things that he's given to us. But he doesn't want those material things to be our Lord. He doesn't want those material things to be the commitment of our life. He wants us to be kingdom-directed, God-directed, living for spiritual values that are going to build up treasures forever and ever and ever. And that's what he's warning us about. And when I was younger, I would have ideas in my Christian life, well, Jesus is down on motorcycles and he's down on cars and he's down on nice clothes and Jesus is just a real Scrooge. That's what the evil one would bring into my mind. As the Lord has talked to me more about this, I realize that he's really being very loving. He's like this tremendous daddy that says, son, I want you to learn to value what's going to last. I want you to put your heart and your soul into what thieves are not going to be able to steal. Because you're never going to find security. You're never going to find a feeling of well-being, a confidence of well-being by material things. So get your eyes on me. Get your eyes on the invisible values that I really stand for. That leads us into the next illustration the Lord uses in verse 22. He says, where your treasure is there, will your, will your heart be also. In verse 22, he changes the figure a little bit. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now that is a, as a strong figure. And let's begin by just getting into that literal idea. He's talking about having bad eyes. He's talking about the time in your life where you were sawing with a saw and suddenly a splinter went right into your eye and you couldn't see out of your eyes. Your eyes became sick. They became diseased. Now, if you've ever had that happen to you, if you've ever had an eye injury, if you've ever had your eyes go bad, you understand how great is that darkness. A diseased eye, when you can't see, is a big problem. As the eye becomes dark and the organ that's supposed to open up the light and to bring all kinds of, of images into our lives is suddenly snuffed out. Now what Jesus does is he tells us, think about a hurt eye. Think about the pain and the darkness and, the, and just the, you know, the, it's just a, a real difficult thing. And then he says this, how great is that darkness if the light within you is dark. And what he's saying is it's, it's really kind of a, a very strong contrast of idea because how does light become darkness? And this last phrase here when he says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In the first century, the word light, and you have this in the Gospel of John, those of you that were with us when we studied the book of John, Remember, John stressed the light and the darkness. Jesus would say something like this. I am the light of the world. Did he say, I am the GE expert of the world? Is that what he meant? No. What did he mean when he said, I am the light of the world? 
The one that comes to me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What did Jesus mean by that? What he meant was that when it come to the, comes to the deep, personal, spiritual values of existence, when it comes to the meaning of reality, the meaning of what's out there when we die, what's really important in this life, Jesus is saying that he is that ultimate answer, the one who's the ultimate teacher, the one that reveals God the Father to us, who is God. And what he's saying is that that's the light within us. But he also talks about the fact that there's a lot of false teaching. And what he's telling you is that every single one of us are building our lives on some light. Often teachers will use the idea, let me try to turn on the lights for you. Let me try to give you insight, they're saying. Sometimes when we're working on a math problem, we'll say, oh, I, yeah, I saw the light. Now I understand. What it's saying is that you walk through life, you're going to have that experience many, many times. You're going to hear someone talk. You're going to read a book. And you're going to say, oh, yeah, that's the meaning of life. Man, I can see it. I understand it. That's the light. And you're going to say, man, that's the way that I should walk. That's the pathway that I should take. That's going to bring me to life. What Jesus says is this. The light, that path that we choose, that we think is illumined, might be total darkness. And I want you to think of the incredible deception that Jesus is highlighting. He's saying that what we think is light within us, what we think is what's going to bring us into meaning, into fulfillment, into happiness, that light can turn out to be darkness. And the way that it does is if the light within us is not, Father, your kingdom come. Lord, help me to flesh out your realities, your desires, your ethical principles. Lord, help me through the power of the Spirit to become an embodiment of what you're talking about, of loving you with all of my heart, of not worshiping idols, of not being immoral, of not, of not being materialistic, all of these things, if we're not centered in that light, then the light within us is going to be darkness. And one of the most difficult things is to be able to see somebody that think that all the lights are on. They think their eye is healthy. They think that what they're looking at is right on the money. But it isn't. It's darkness. And it will turn out to be a fatal lie, a fatal deception. So Jesus, in, in the idea of treasure, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. What your eye is looking at, you need to be very sure that it's healthy, what you're looking at, what you're adoring, what's at the center of your being, what's turning on the light inside of you. And if, it, if it's not the Father, if it's not the Holy Scriptures, then it's going to become great darkness to us. It's really very much the same idea. It has to do, it's almost a reminder, it's like an echo of those first three petitions. We pray to our daddy in heaven. We get our desires on his kingdom. We get our desires on his will. And then we can keep our material needs in perspective. So that we don't begin to treasure those and the light within us doesn't become darkness. Verse 24 just brings the idea of the treasure and of the eye into a sharp conclusion of that, that first idea 
of give us this day our daily bread and how to have right priorities. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or mammon would be a better translation because mammon in the ancient world meant a lot more than money. I could paraphrase this. You can't have God at the center of your life and also have material things at the center of your life. You can't be bowing down before God, the true God of the scripture, and also be bowing down before all of our material things. It says that we can't be a slave to our material things and be God's servant. The two things are antithetical. It's not saying that we can't have material things. It's not saying that we can't use material things. It's just saying that those material things cannot have us. You can't serve God and all of that material stuff. And that's a heavy one for all of us. Because I find I can go through times of my life, and so can you, where I'm genuinely motivated. I begin to live for material things. For some of us, it happens with a new vehicle, and we've talked about that in the past. But you, we all know what truck fever is. We know what car fever is. What happens during that time? When you're going out and looking at all those vehicles, it's a high time of life. It's an exhilarating time of life. And, and you can be all excited about it, especially the first time you do it when you're young. And man alive, you go, man, my life is exciting now. It's thrilling now. What's happening there? That's adoration. You're adoring that vehicle. In fact, it's an incredible, we'll make, we'll make unbelievable sacrifices. Teenagers will say, Mom and Dad, I promise I'll work all during the weekends. I'll work at night during the week. I'll just do anything if only I can have that. And they get it. And men alive, it really does produce meaning. That's worship. That's heart. Now, there's nothing wrong with a truck. There's nothing wrong with being excited about it. There's nothing wrong with working to have it. But it's that incredible devotion that we're capable of that material things can easily grab deep in our heart that Jesus is saying you can't serve God and materialistic values. You just can't do it. Think about the people that you rub shoulders with at work and think about what they're genuinely living for. What they're genuinely living for. I read an article recently about a man of God. And I read an article about eight months ago and a reporter asked this guy, the guy lived in about an $800,000 house, and he drove a lot of fancy cars and had a very elite, prestigious church. And this reporter asked this individual, how do you know these things don't have you? And he said, if they had me, then I would resign, then I would quit, because I would know that. The news went out over our whole area. That pastor, as the years, as time went by, a few more months went by, and it turned out that he had a lot more trouble than just fancy cars and homes and that he was also very immoral. You see how subtle the game is? You see, our heart just gets displaced. My heart can get displaced, and so can yours. And we can even be going through all the right words and all the right teaching 
but our heart has just shifted to a different place. And as soon as we enter that world of materialistic values, we start to not serve God, but we start to serve mammon. And mammon is an evil one. It's incredibly destructive. And I think it needs to be, rather than, rather than being bad, 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 you're bad children, you shouldn't worship those things. I think our attitude should be, Lord, this is a very subtle enemy. But what really has our hearts? What are we really living for? And Jesus is just opening up the truth to us. He says, David, I don't want you to live your life for money. Because when you get, if I give you that much time, when you get up into your elderly years, money's not going to make that much difference. It's going to be people that made a difference. It's going to be the morality of your life that was created by the power of the Spirit. It's going to be the fact that people could depend upon you. It's going to be the fact that you were a dependable friend. That you hung in there with others and they hung in there with you. It's going to be the fact that you declared the gospel. It's going to be the fact that you ran a long-distance race and remained true to the gospel and not the fact that you got a lot of money. That's just the honest, the goodness, truth. And I think we should just make it a covenant to pray for one another in that area. That we will not worship material things, but that we will worship God. Jesus talked in verse 25 about something real practical. The reason you don't want to worship material things is if you worship material things, you're going to worry. And I want to share something with you. If material things are your God, you better worry. Really worry. Because man alive, they can go just like that. Mary and I were up with some lumbermen up in Maine. One of my closest friends in high school, his dad was a lumberman in Maine. And when he graduated from college, the two of them, he and his older brother got together, traveled all over the United States, and they built a fantastic lumber mill. What they did was that they took hemlocks in Maine, they could put them in as a raw log, after the branches were cut off, they could put them in at a, at a, as a raw log at one end of the plant, and they could be loaded onto trucks for New Jersey to build houses at the other end of the mill. So it was just one sequence, a raw hemlock, into, into framing up material for, for homes that they're building all over New Jersey. Mary and I and the kids went up there, and we're going, seeing the big saws and, and looking at you know, the really nice homes they lived in. And I remember thinking, wow, what a life. Dad was there. All the kids were there. All the sons-in-laws were there. And we had lobster. We had lobster's a big thing in Maine. You, can, Maine. you can get it a lot cheaper than here. And you have what you call lobster fries. And you put newspaper all over these picnic tables. You put on your old grubby sweatshirts. And you get what they call steamers, a great big bag, maybe 25, 30 pounds of steamers. And you reach in the bag and you throw them up and everybody kind of tears them apart like cannibals. And you eat these lobsters, okay? Remember, I remember this scene. We were by this beautiful main lake and this idyllic family is around and we're eating all this lobster. I remember thinking, I remember thinking, what in the world am I doing? You know, man, life, here's my friend in high school that I played football with. And look what he's doing. He's, he's running this great big lumber mill. Now, his values are not like that at all. 
because he had just gotten through a week of, of coming over to Word of Life, and we'd been sharing the Word. And, and some of the reasons that Mary and I went over there was to be able to share more. We spoke in their church and to teach the Word up there in this country town in Maine. And so his values were in all what I was thinking. But if I'm honest, there was a little hint of, man alive, look at all that he's got. A year and a half later, a year and a half later, the mill was completely gone. My friend had lost it completely. You know how he lost it? The Canadians subsidized by just a few cents their lumber. And so that my friend was losing two cents about on every board because the Canadians subsidized that and our government allowed them to bring the hemlock from Canada down into New Jersey. So my friend for about a year and a half lost a penny, two pennies aboard. And when you multiply it times thousands upon thousands aboard, it meant they had to sell out their whole operation. About a week or two weeks or a little bit longer after they sold out, the United States government put a tariff on the Canadian lumber and the whole situation changed back the other way, but the mill was gone. Now you talk about worry. If you're living for this idyllic, idyllic situation, being able to use your mind and being able to build a big plant and being able to really be prosperous, you've got a lot to worry about because just like that, by things that are totally beyond your control, my friend couldn't anymore control what the Congress did, what the Canadians did. It had nothing to do with him. But it snuffed out his material things. You know why Jesus says what he does? Don't let that be your treasure. Because therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink. Oh, no, I don't know what in the world we're going to eat today. Don't worry. Don't worry about your body. Remember I talked to you about the 40-year-olds? Well, my blood pressure is too high. It's not going to help your blood pressure to worry about it. In fact, the reason a lot of us have high blood pressure is because we are stressed out, because we're worried, because we're worshiping material things. We're trying to hang on to it. Part of the 40 syndrome is that you begin to worry because you begin to realize, hey, this thing might not be around forever. Teenagers think, man, I am going to be around forever. I'm going to live you know, from now until eternity. But we wake up and realize as we grow older, man, I'm destructible. And man, that makes you worry. Jesus says, don't worry. Why not? He says this, isn't life more important than food? Come on. Your life's more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And I could translate it like this. Are you who do plant and store up in barns and have agriculture, have all that organization, don't you think that someone that was made in the image of God is much more important than just a little bird? When I was up at Word of Life, down in the boathouse, there were, there were probably 40 nests of sparrows up there. And it was just incredible to watch them fly. I mean, when you drove the boat in there, it was like facing a dive bomber attack. I mean, drawing all these, the moms and dads thought we were going to wipe out their little 
birds that are up there and you see all these little heads sneak out over the top and they're waiting for mom to bring in something eating everything but you know what in the midst of all that activity there was a lot of activity all kinds of going out after food and and bringing it back for those little birds and getting them ready to fly and watching all that but i didn't see any anxiety none of the birds i never saw any counselors that were talking with the birds about their stress quotient and all that now don't laugh too hard that's because birds don't have a capacity for stress because they're not made in the image of god they don't know about the future they don't they don't have that kind of of ability to think and look forward to what might happen but you know what jesus is saying you know as you look at this incredible thing you look at the nest they build way up there and right up on these beams this incredible engineering ability a loving daddy the creator the providence of god taught them how to do that enabled them to do that and to watch him get those little little birds up on the edge of those nests and the mom would dive down and kind of put out her wings and begin to show them how to fly and then you'd watch her just push them right out when they were strong enough and you know they'd see these feeble attempts this marvelous teaching skill of teaching them how to fly and what jesus is saying is listen my children stop worrying how many of you how many of you this week have superintended birds and taking care of them. I, there's probably a few of you. How many of you have worried this week about whether or not the birds learned how to fly? You ever stop and think about it? All that activity was going on without my help. In fact, I was really an intrusion coming in rum, rum, with a speedboat. I was an intrusion, but all this activity was going on according to schedule. These little birds were learning how to fly. They were being fed. All that was going on without my help. And you know what? If I were to be snuffed off the planet, it would go right on. But you know what Jesus said? He says, it's not that I'm unimportant, but he's saying that I'm much more important than that. And if God is superintending these little creatures, then doesn't it make sense that he's superintending us, that he's caring for us? It's what Jesus is trying to get us to get a hold of. He says this, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? What Jesus is saying is, if you ever take worry out to its conclusion, what most of us are stressed out about, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. When I was in high school, I thought my heart was going to stop. You ever had that? I'm sure, in talking to some of my psychologist friends, they call it like an anxiety attack. And what would happen is that I would suddenly think, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, I thought my heart was going to stop. Anybody ever had that experience? In fact, I even check it. And then I take my pulse in, and sometimes my pulse would really skip. I don't know whether it was my pulse or what it was, you know, but I would get this suddenly weirdo reading. And I'd be just jumping out of the bed. Have you ever had that experience? I know some of you have. Those are the kind of things that hardly anybody ever talks about. In fact, I can remember, and I've shared this with somebody in the past, I remember getting back to receive punts where I was very much alive. I mean, I was running, you know, several miles every day. I was lifting weights. I was very much alive in the middle of a football game getting ready to receive a punt. I remember checking my jersey because I thought my heart was going to stop. Man, it was scary. In fact, it started taking away my sleep at night. 
It was really messing me up. I even went for a checkup. I went to the nurse and says, take my blood pressure. And my, I've got a, a funny murmur in the way that my blood pressure goes. It's kind of a functional thing that when they listen again, there's no real problem there. But when they first listen to it, they get this horrible look on their face. Oh, no. And man, that made me even worse. I mean, I was ready to climb right off the ceiling. I was so anxious. Remember one night in the middle of the night when I was in high school, I guess it was some of what I was working through was what Jesus is talking to us about. David, you can't add a single, single minute to your life. And that's what I was worried about. I was afraid I was going to die. I was afraid my physical life wouldn't keep going. And finally, it was like in the middle of the night I realized, Dave, you can't do a blessed thing about it. If your heart is going to stop, it's going to stop. And you don't have one single thing to say about it. So why don't you just say, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But it's, it's in the Lord's control. Now that sounds like an easy thing, but it took me a long, long time to get to that point. But you know, it's true. There's a whole lot of moms and dads, even some children in our society that are all stressed out. And one of the basic ingredients of your stress is you're trying to add a minute to your life. And I want to tell you the truth. All of your worry, all of your thinking about it, all of the stress can't add one second to your life. I've learned, I've been there when they're born and I've been there when they die. And I found out that the experts can't tell when they're coming and they can't tell when they're going. Because only God knows that. And that's the truth. And it sounds like such a simple idea, and you've heard it over and over again, but I wish we would pray today, covet to pray for one another. Lord, help us to enter into that glorious freedom of the children of God, free from worry, because I can't add anything to my life. I don't need to worry about what I'm going to eat. It doesn't mean that I don't work. It doesn't mean that I don't labor. Jesus is not teaching us to be lazy, but he's teaching us to work without that stress to work without that feeling this whole thing's going to cave in if I don't do it. It isn't. There's a loving daddy that's taking care of things. And even though it looks at times like his kingdom is totally confused and disorderly, in the long run it won't be. And Jesus is saying, trust. Because your worry can't add a second to your life. He says, then why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Boy, that tells us an awful lot about our Heavenly Daddy. I think some of us have the idea, if I trusted the Heavenly Father to dress me, that's the last thing in the world that I would want to look like. And boy, that tells us a terrible lie that the evil one has gotten across to people. That if you allow God to be the one that provides clothes for us, that they're going to be gunny sacks and long black things, maybe black hats, those big brims. That's really, if we're honest, that's an intrinsic idea to us. If I ever say, trust God about our clothes, pray to him about it, ask him to give you wisdom in that area, we have the idea that that would mean, yeah, I know what that'll mean. It's the same mentality we have if I say, well, you need to trust the Lord with your life. Every one of us are ending up in deep, dark Africa with a pit helmet on. Because we automatically assume if I really let God have my life, he's going to wipe me right out. 
It's like God sits up in heaven going, aha, there's another girl down there. She would really like to look nice for school, but boy, she's going to give her life completely to me. She's going to dedicate her life. She's going to dress for me. Ha ha, I can make her look like a total idiot this year. God doesn't do that. That's the evil one causing us to doubt the character of God. People come from all over the United States to see Texas wildflowers. That's what Jesus is talking about. Whoever designs the wildflowers, they're just out in fields. I would challenge you, if you doubt your Heavenly Father, go out to a field of blue bonnets and get right down on your stomach or on your back and just look out over those flowers. And then look at the Indian paintbrush mixed in. If you doubt your Heavenly Father's artistic ability and his sense of beauty, if you doubt the fact that he can put clothes on our back that will be good and, and appropriate and artistic and beautiful, look at the wildflowers. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry about that. Don't devote your life to that because your Heavenly Father already knows that you need those things. He says not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. If God knows how to clothe the grass of the field, which is here today and mowed down tomorrow, in other words, how much more will he clothe you? And then this is the issue. Oh, you of little faith. What we're really talking about today is faith. Having faith. So do not worry what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. The unbelievers, the idea of the pagans would be the unbelievers. Those, remember, that we learned about that babble in their prayer life. The unbelievers run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first the values. I would challenge you. Have you been going back over the Sermon on the Mount? Remember, are you seeking to be filled with his spirit so that you're gentle, so that you're meek? Are you seeking to be pure in your heart, having integrity, a singleness of purpose, devotion to the Lord? Are you merciful? Are you asking the Spirit of God to help you to be merciful? That's what Jesus is talking about. Go back over the sermon and look at what it means to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which means to seek the lifestyle that corresponds to his will. And then all these material things, all of our needs, which is where we started out, give us today our daily needs. If we get our eyes on the kingdom of God, if we get our eyes upon his will, then all of these things will be given to, to you as well, will be given to us as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And Mary would say that that's my life verse. Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. And that really is basically what I use. I use it as an excuse for not planning. I'm a today person, okay? Some of you live in the past. Kim was telling me about some of his relatives that he loves to get together with them because they reminisce about all the old stories. So some people live in the past. Jesus wants us to remember the past and learn from the past but not live there. There's some other people that live in the future. Like I knew of an editor who was always six months. He always had to be planning projects six months ahead. And I thought about it. I heard him speaking about his job. I thought about how different that was. Because that's not me at all. But there's some real skill in that. And the Lord in other sections of the gospel talks about planning. He talks about making wise plans. And that's where Mary comes in in our own family. Somebody does have to begin to think through how we're going to get from point A to point B. So Jesus is telling us, he's not telling us not to plan. 
But what he's telling us about is don't bring the anxiety and the worries and the responsibilities of tomorrow into today. And you know what you're finding? I've shared this with Mary often. She, you know, she always says, I know, I know. But one of the basic things is, you know, she spends a lot of time worrying about things that never happen. You see, that's why I don't do that. Now, a lot worse things would happen if she didn't plan. But what Jesus is telling us is, don't spend your life anxious about what might be. I want you to analyze your worry quotient today. And how many of you are worrying about, well, this might happen. This might happen. I don't know what's going to happen then. I don't know what I'm going to do. And think about the future orientation of your worry. Now, I want you to look back over your life, and I want you to remember the things that you are worrying about and compare them to what really happened in life. And what really happened in life, some things that you weren't worrying about at all, were things that were really basket cases. I mean, they were disasters. But you couldn't have known about it. So it didn't help to worry. And a lot of the things that you were so intensely concerned about, you look back on it now, and, and almost all of us will tell funny stories about things that we were really anxious about. My mom, before she went home to heaven, as I was being raised as a little kid, my mom would tell me again and again and again, David, take it one day at a time. Live today. Don't bring all the concerns of tomorrow. Do today what God has for us. And then she would say this, because David, that's all you got. Vance Havner's home with the Lord now, and I, I, I did a prophetic congress with Vance. And I, when he, was, he was an elderly, elderly man. It was the last time I spoke with him. And he was a great giant of the faith, the, the, the absolute epitome of a southern gentleman speaker and man of God. And I said to, I said, Dr. Havner, I'm young. What would you tell me as an older man that's preached the gospel for 50 years? What would you tell me? And he said this. Number one, he would say, Dave, decide whether you're going to believe in the Holy Scriptures. He says, when I was about your age, I went through a time where I wandered away from the Scriptures. And I started teaching people a lot of other stuff. He said, David, you decide whether you're going to teach and be committed to the Word of God. And he said, I have made that commitment. And in my 80s, it was the right choice. And then he said this. He said, don't forget to smell the flowers every day. He said, don't ever get all caught up into the great task that you forget to enjoy the Creator today. And he had a very wise master that taught him that. The ultimate wise man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my heart goes out to many of you because I know that what we've talked about today, materialism, worry, stress, it's destroying the pagan world. It's destroying the unbelieving world. But it's destroying us. And Matthew 6 is a chapter I've known for years and years and years. So we haven't said much new today because that's not what God wants us to hear. It's not the novelty things that are our lifeblood. It's the simple things that Jesus exposes to us that are true. And one of my biggest prayers is, you know, a message like today could increase your worry. 
you could become all guilty about the fact, man, I'm not applying Matthew 6, and what's wrong with me? What I want you to do is fall in love with your father. Because it all comes down to, do you trust your daddy in heaven? Do you trust him? And that's not easy. This side of eternity, that's a tough one. In fact, it's an impossible one. We have to receive it as a gift. But in the expression of our heart and the adoration of our lives, we learn how to trust.